We finished our study of Isaiah 53, and this is the first Sunday that I've been with you this year, so Happy New Year. Thank you. Appreciate that. Um, so it's, it's good to be here. We're also going to start a new series. So we're going to be looking at 1 John. 1 John is the first of three letters written by the Apostle John. He also is credited with the book of Revelation and the gospel of John as well. If you're careful in your reading, you're going to see a lot of overlap and similar themes in the gospel of John and this first letter. Uh, so keep your eyes open. I'll try to point it out as we work our way through over the next uh, months or so. So let me read for us 1 John chapter 1 and the first four verses. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it. <clears throat> Testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and, we he and heard we proclaim also to you so that, to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that your, our joy, excuse me, may be complete. It seems of late, just in terms of the uh, spirit of the age and the uh, things going on in our world and in our own lives, it is an appropriate time for encouragement. We don't often think about that intentionally. We uh, oftentimes just, just do it from time to time, encourage someone uh, with one thing or another. But we need a message of encouragement. That's what the book of uh, 1 John is. It is an appeal of this, of this elder pastor to the church here to encourage them that they truly do have eternal life. It's a matter of assurance, assurance of salvation. If you're a believer, you likely have occurred this or, or struggle with this at some point. Am I really a Christian? Uh, how do I know that God truly has saved me? How do I know that Jesus has accepted me? These are all things that many Christians, in fact, perhaps most Christians, struggle with at some point or another. This is the fight of faith. In fact, J.C. Ryle once said that faith or assurance is simply mature faith. It's grown up. So faith is something that matures. And oftentimes it's through the challenges that we face. Not just the challenges of life, but the challenges we face spiritually. And so what do we need in times of struggle, in times of even spiritual, perhaps spiritual chaos within us? We need the word of life. Because it is the word of life that is the only 
reason that we can have assurance of salvation. The only thing that can make you sure that you are saved is by looking at the word of life himself. You will not find salvation anywhere else than looking at the Son of God. And this is what John is trying to, to over and over again teach the people here. We're going to see this as we move through the book. Uh, and I encourage you, if you're going uh, to do any reading today, which sounds good, perhaps you want to read this in light of the message this morning. So what is John writing about? Well, first of all, we see that he is writing about the word of life. Now, I read this passage, perhaps it stood out to you that you hear the echoes of Genesis 1 and John 1. The echoes of Genesis 1, in the beginning was God and, uh, and God made all things. And, and then you come to first, or John, the gospel, chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. And everything that came into being came into being through the Word. In fact, as, first, as John continues, we see that in him, in the word, was life. This is the gospel of John. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. When you look at chapter 1 here, you see word, you see life, if you move on into and verse 5, you see that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. What John is doing is he is taking the reality of the incarnation of God, the word of life, into Jesus Christ. And having told of the good news of the message of the life of Christ and what he has done, he now takes that and he distills it into a letter to teach the church what this means for them. This means that salvation is a real thing. The word here is not new. All things came into being through the word. And so the word here that spoke everything in the being, being God the Son, is the one who has now come. What this tells us is that the purpose of God in salvation <clears throat> is not an afterthought. It is what God has purposed from before the foundation of the world. All things come into being through the word. All things are upheld by the word. And it is only the word himself that can give life. The word became man. And he dwelt among us, John says in the gospel of John. And now he's saying here, that word that I wrote about in the gospel, that word became life and we touched him, we saw him, we felt him. Look at the language. We have seen, we have heard him, we have seen with our eyes. 
We have looked upon him. We have touched him. Look at verse 2. Was made manifest. We have seen it and testify and proclaim it to you. Verse 3. What we have seen and what we have heard, we proclaim to you. He's not being redundant just to, to bring out, you know, because he's, he's like me, he's lacking vocabulary right at the moment. He's not doing that. He's trying to tell the people there who have not seen Jesus. He's telling them, I saw it. We saw it. He's real. John, John is the one who said, hey, perhaps he even said to them, hey, I lean back against him. The Last Supper. And I felt comfortable enough to lean back against him. I asked him, who is the one who will betray you? We've touched him. He's not a phantom. We saw him in the resurrection of the dead. And now we proclaim this to you. And think about this man reasoning. He's an old man. Maybe the last uh, uh, letter he wrote. We don't have a clear um, chronology of, of these three letters. So this very well could have been the last letter that John wrote. And what does he want to do as an old man, as a minister, as a pastor? He wants to pass, to pass along the historical reality of this. Faith is not a blind faith. Faith is faith in something that's real, in someone who's real and who has proven his reality and his real existence and has brought fulfillment to the word of God. And John is saying, it's real. You remember Thomas? Thomas. <laughs> Growing up, you're doubting Thomas. I don't even know if they use that anymore. But doubting Thomas is the one who said, I will not believe that he is alive unless I'm able to put my finger in his marks in his hands. And then a few, uh, some short time later, they're back in the upper room and Jesus appears and he he's not a ghost. He's a glorified human being, a body. And he says, here, put your, put your hands here. Put your fingers here. Thomas didn't. He simply said, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. But it is not a blind Belief. It is a belief rooted in a person. It's a challenge for us to think about distant figures in the past without creating in our mind this, this own little world. And we kind of see people at a distance, almost at a, like a movie, and we forget a lot of times that they're real or they're human beings. And that's really the case with the Bible, isn't it? These become stories. These become bigger matters, and they are. But sometimes we lose the earthiness of the Bible. 
the fact that Jesus would have been in the synagogue, that he would have been in worship service on the Sabbath, that he would have been sitting perhaps beside you. And I imagine he behaved well, but he was sitting beside you, listening, gathering the word of God. Real. Jesus is the message. Perhaps we've heard people say that, and that can become cliche, hasn't it? It can it. It can become cliche. The salvation is a person. Life is a person. God is life. The word of life. And if we are going to have life, we must have him. There's no other way. There's no other reality and there's no other name by which we must be saved. It must be him. And we must see him for what he is. He is a human being like you. That word that spoke everything became just like you. Remember Isaiah 53? He had no form or beauty that we should take notice of him. He was a regular guy. He was around here, perhaps you've seen him down at the hardware store. Have a chat with him. See what he's, talk about what he's building, what you're building. That's the earthly reality of God becoming man. He didn't become man to dwell above man. He didn't become man uh, to, to, to conquer man. He became man to live among men as God with us, Emmanuel. He became man to save man. Later on, in the Gospel of John, chapter 17, we hear him pray himself. And he says this, this is eternal life, that they may know you. He's praying to his father, may you know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is eternal life, to know God and to know his son. Eternal life is a gift. We oftentimes think of eternal life as life never ending and life that continues going. But we miss the import of this if we don't grasp it. To know God is life now. To know Christ, to believe in him is life now. You have eternal life. It's not something that you are awaiting it's not something that you're looking forward to way in the future. John says you have it now. Jesus says that they may know you. This is eternal life. That may, they may know me.
It's a present reality. The one thing that we are not good at is thinking about the present. We are held imprisoned by the tyranny of the clock, the tyranny of the schedule, the tyranny of our world that says go, go, go. Rather than stopping and saying right at this moment and every moment I experience, I have life. No matter what happens tomorrow, tomorrow belongs to the Lord. I have eternal life now. Because I know God. There's a finality to this. And, and that's, that's what I want us to see. I want us to see that if you believe it's a finality, your eternal life is set won't change. The freedom that comes with this, the freedom from asking constantly in the question, what if, what if, what if this next week, what if that next week? And it helps you more to find security now because Christ is your security. We were at a faculty retreat this week, and one of the uh, one of the professors was talking about how they discovered a few months ago that his wife has stage four cancer, and uh, they don't really have a lot they can do for it now. Uh, but they can do for it; they can uh, postpone as best they can, as long as they can. And he made this comment, and it, was, it wasn't that idea of living each day, though that is clear when that happens. But it was the comment uh, that hopefully three or four years down the road, they'll have something. They'll have something better. And so that you could hear from the idea was living with what they had now and trying not to think so much about what ifs and ifs at all. Death is a fearful thing. Even for the believer, it's a fearful thing. Scripture never looks at death in a trivial manner. When people die in the Bible, you don't hear people say, oh, let's have a celebration. Let's celebrate their lives. And I'm not critiquing anyone or, or making a, a comment that would be a degrading comment towards any idea of that. I think it is. I think there's a reason to give thanks and to rejoice at the life of a human being. But Scripture doesn't put a facade over the reality that death is bad. The mourning that goes on in the scripture over death is a right and good thing. Jesus wept. 
He wept over the death of Lazarus and what sin had done to humankind. Death is not a trivial thing. But life triumphs over death. What John wants you to see is that the life you have in Christ has already triumphed over your death. And that's why Paul says, oh, death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? We've been delivered unto life. So that's what he's writing about. But we also see why he is writing, which we've already touched on a little bit. But if you look at verses three to four, you see the reason that he is writing he says is that he wants them to have fellowship with us. Now, who's he referring to? He and the apostles, he and the other church. Uh, don't really know, but the us is the idea of those who are in Christ. And he wants this, ch- this church, particular church, to know that if they know the Lord, then they have fellowship. You have fellowship with us also. We do, he's doing this to say we have fellowship and you have fellowship with God because we have fellowship with God. Because you have fellowship with us as God's people, then you have fellowship with God as well. He's writing this to them to know that they are in communion with God and communion with one another in the church. This is a very deep theological concept. It, po- it, point, it, excuse me, it delves into the mystery of the spiritual realities that we just simply can't see. Of how we have union with Christ and union with one another in the church. And this is not just metaphorical imageries in scripture. This is a spiritual reality. And so we need to see that this is not, as one commentator, sentimental or superficial attachment. It's not socializing with like-minded people. There's something far greater. There is a purposeful, spiritual, and deep connection with one another in the church. The true believer hears about other believers in the community in the church and whatever is going on, there's a sense of, com- of connection with them. The believers around the world that we hear about going through persecution and suffering, when we hear about that there's a sense in which there's an, an empathy, our, our, our emotions go out to them. Because we know they're brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not superficial. It's not sentimental. It's called a shared life. Our life is in God and we fellowship with God and we live a shared life with God. We live a shared life with one another. Scholars and theologians have spoken of this many times in many different ways. But the richness of scripture implies this because God lives, you live. 
and we live as one, the body of Christ. Now, as he moves on, there's an interesting statement that he makes. He says, we also write this, and the reason why, fellowship, right? Encourage him of fellowship. And he said, there's also a reason we write this, and that is to make our joy complete. Now, as I was reading this earlier when we were, uh, have our scripture reading, uh, you may have noticed that I said your, and that's, excuse me, our, and that's because there's a textual difference among the many different Greek texts that we have that we use to translate. And some texts have our joy, and some texts have your joy. And so it really doesn't matter which one it is because the idea is joy and the idea of joy is shared in the church. If someone rejoices in someone else, then they rejoice in kind. Now, with that said, If it is indeed the word our here, then John is telling us that he has great joy in telling them the gospel and giving them assurance as best he can. That it makes him joyful to sit down with a believer, whether they're old or whether they're young and just sitting down with them as a pastor and encouraging them, this is true. Stay the course. Stay the course. If you, if you know the Lord, if you know me as the, as, as the apostle, if you know the church as God's people, then you, you need to rest. John finds joy in that. You find joy in helping people. That's, the, that's kind of the underlying idea here. You find joy in helping people. This is a side note, but I think it's important here. We're all seeking joy to some degree. But it's been noted by many writers, and particularly I've read recently with C.S. Lewis, that the pursuit of joy will not end with joy. You won't find joy if you pursue it. And that's because joy is not an object. It's the experience of the object. You have your children and you're playing with them. You have a sense of joy, right? It happens. It happens because you're enjoying them. So the pursuit of joy is not found in the, and the pursuit of joy will not be found, but the pursuit of Christ will bring joy. The pursuit of helping others will bring joy. The joyous thing to do something else for another and the Lord Jesus rejoiced to do everything for you. And so those who are 
followers of Christ find joy in helping others. A minister sitting here or writing here saying, be encouraged, have assurance. And seeing people come to the point in which they're not, they're not looking at themselves for that assurance. They're finding that as they fix their eyes on Jesus, he himself is their assurance. The problem with seeking assurance for most people is that they're seeking a feeling. They're trying to rationalize to a to a, a, a harmful degree whether or not they can look within themselves and see hard cut evidence that they are a Christian. Now there are spiritual markers but that's not where it begins. Assurance is found in the assurance, assurance of who Christ is. Are you assured of him? Are you assured that he is the word of life? Are you assured that as you throw yourself at him for, your mercy, for mercy, for for life everlasting, and you continue to say, nothing in my hands I bring, I simply cling to Jesus. I cling to you, Lord. I have no other option. You are my hope. That's where the assurance is found. Charles Spurgeon wrote a long time ago that uh, uh, on, on the topic of election, he said, so many people ask the question, am I one of the elect? Am I one of the elect? You won't figure that out, he says. It's when you look to Christ as your savior that you see your election in him because he is the chosen one. What is John trying to do here? And what am I trying to do in a poorer manner than John is to say this. The things you heap upon yourself to say this is what I must meet in order to be a clear Christian. Then you are doing nothing more than trying to earn your assurance. Because what you're doing is trying to earn your salvation. What else do you have to do to try to prove that you're a believer? Well, you can keep trying to do many things. But the proof that you're a believer is that you believe into him. He. His love for you and your return love for him, that's what makes you a believer. Don't walk away from here thinking that you have to keep trying to do something. Walk away from here with the sense that he has done it all. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to you for mercy. These are wonderful truths that we in our fallenness have very uh, challenging times and difficult times to embrace. But help us to see that it's not difficult. It's actually very simple. 
And that's simply by putting our minds and our hearts and our eyes upon the Lord Jesus. If we have him and we live each day knowing that we have him and, and that's all we need, and perhaps we'll enjoy life more because we have found joy through Christ because of his life. We ask, Father, for grace and we pray for mercy and we trust that your spirit will guide us in the paths of righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen.